You were called to the neonatal intensive care unit to evaluate Kaylee, a one-hour-old girl born at 27 weeks gestation. The pregnancy was complicated by maternal diabetes. The nurse notes that Kaylee has been grunting constantly and she has nasal flaring. Her oxygen saturation dropped and remains at 86% despite turning it up to 100% FiO2. On exam, Kaylee is tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 75 and you can readily see her nasal flaring and grunting. As you consider her deterioration, you wonder, what are the possible causes for her respiratory distress? And what additional interventions could you consider to help her respiratory condition? Consider your answers as we begin this next episode. Welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing respiratory medicine from our bricks to your ears. Let's get started demonstrating how kids are not little adults. After completing this section, you will be able to 1. Define neonatal respiratory distress syndrome and list its risk factors. 2. Apply Laplace law, lung compliance, pulmonary vascular resistance, and extrapulmonary shunts to the etiology of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. 3. Differentiate between type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes and their role in neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. 4. Discuss the clinical presentation of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. And 5. Explain how the application of positive end expiratory pressure and exogenous surfactant helps patients with neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. Part 1. What is neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Preterm infants are at risk of breathing difficulties for a number of reasons, but especially because their lungs have not had enough time to fully develop. In particular, they do not produce enough surfactant, which is a substance that helps keep their terminal air spaces from collapsing. Without surfactant, neonates may develop hypoxia, tachypnea, which is defined as a respiratory rate greater than 60 breaths per minute in a neonate, and cyanosis. Ultimately, this is describing a condition called neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. As we begin to get into the details, let's first review what's happening in the lungs during the transition from intrauterine to extrauterine life. In utero, the fetus obtains oxygen and nutrients from the maternal circulation and placenta via the umbilical vein and does not require or use the fetal lungs for gas exchange. As oxygenated blood returns to the heart from the umbilical vein via the inferior vena cava and deoxygenated blood returns via the superior vena cava, the blood mixes in the right atrium. From here, the majority of blood in the fetus is shunted past the lungs through the patent foramen ovale directly into the left atrium or from the pulmonary artery through the patent ductus arteriosus and into the descending aorta and systemic circulation. When babies are born and take their first breath, the amniotic fluid in the lungs is cleared by expulsion and absorption. Inhaling oxygen also relaxes the pulmonary vessels, creating a low-pressure pulmonary circulation and changing the flow of blood across the foramen ovale and ductus arteriosus so that it now remains in the low-pressure right atrium and pulmonary artery. This dramatic physiologic change at birth has many components. If any one of these components is not optimal, for example, insufficient lung development and surfactant production, babies will develop hypoxia and respiratory distress during this transition period. Aside from prematurity, 
Risk factors for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome include multiparous pregnancies, maternal diabetes, and rarely hereditary conditions that impact the function and or production of surfactant. Transit tachypnea of the newborn, or TTN, is the most common clinical condition in the newborn period where another of these necessary postnatal changes is suboptimal. This may occur in term and late preterm infants, especially after cesarean section, when there is a failure to clear amniotic fluid from the lungs. In other words, if there is insufficient expulsion and or absorption of the amniotic fluid out of the lungs when the baby is born, this can impair gas exchange and lead to hypoxia and tachypnea. Chest x-ray may show overinflated lungs with increased perihilar interstitial markings with or without small pleural effusions. Risk factors for TTN include a short or rapid labor, delivery by cesarean section, and maternal diabetes. With supportive therapy of supplemental oxygen, tachypnea will improve, and the condition typically resolves after about 24 to 72 hours as the neonate exhales the retained fluid without long-term complications. Part 2. What are the origins and function of surfactant? Surfactant is a mixture of phospholipoproteins produced by type 2 pneumocytes. Surfactant reduces surface tension in the airways, keeping the airways open and helping the structural cells of the alveoli, type 1 pneumocytes, to facilitate gas exchange between the alveoli and the blood. It is easy to differentiate these cells on histology slides. Type 1 pneumocytes are thin squamous cells, predominantly lining the outside layer of the alveoli, where they can perform gas exchange with the red blood cells within the alveolar capillaries. On the other hand, type 2 pneumocytes are rounder in structure and fewer in number, and interspersed prominently among the type 1 pneumocytes. Let's review our knowledge of the above with a question. Which cells are needed to produce surfactant and reduce surface tension in the airways to keep the airways open? Type 2 pneumocytes produce surfactant and reduce surface tension in the airways. Part 3. Laplace Law and the Neonatal Respiratory Distress Syndrome Surfactant production really picks up starting during the third trimester of gestation. As noted above, this helps keep the airways open and prevents alveolar collapse. It also decreases the work needed to open alveoli back up if they were to have collapsed. This concept is described by the Laplace Law, which states, The pressure needed to maintain open alveoli is equal to 2 times the surface tension divided by the radius. The Laplace Law illustrates the pathophysiology of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome in two ways. First, the Laplace Law states that but pressure to keep the alveoli open is inversely proportional to their radius. Absent the modifying influence of surfactant, the smaller alveoli radius, the higher the pressure needed. Since smaller alveoli are more likely to collapse in on themselves in the absence of surfactant, this leads to atelectasis or collapsed alveoli in the neonatal lungs. Second, Laplace Law also demonstrates that modifying the surface tension can modify the pressure needed to maintain alveolar patency. Surfactant decreases the surface tension of the alveoli, leading to decreased pressure needed within the alveoli. Therefore, 
piecing this together with a first point, surfactant has a large impact in small alveoli, because the smaller the alveoli, the more dependent they are on surfactant to keep them open. This phenomenon leads to a more equal distribution of airflow between the large and small alveoli, preventing the small alveoli from collapsing. In summary, increased surface tension may lead to an increased airway pressure needed to maintain open alveoli. This is especially the case in an alveoli with a smaller radius, as a greater pressure will be needed for these small alveoli to maintain their shape. Conversely then, reducing surface tension through surfactant will assist in preventing alveoli from collapsing. For this reason, surfactant also increases the compliance or ease of the lung to expand. Therefore, surfactant deficiency leads to decreased compliance and more work needed to expand stiffer lungs. Part 4. Gas Exchange in a Surfactant Deficient Lung Now that we understand why premature neonates with surfactant deficiency have difficulty keeping their alveoli open, let's discuss an additional factor that adds to the challenge of gas exchange. As we noted earlier, oxygen is a potent vasodilator. When premature neonates are born with hypoxia from relatively collapsed airways, their pulmonary blood vessels may remain constricted with high vascular resistance, similar to the in utero physiology. This will impede gas exchange further. In addition to fewer open airways for gas exchange, there's now less pulmonary blood flow for gas exchange. Let's stop here for a quick question break. Can you name two factors that impair gas exchange in the premature neonate? Surfactant deficiency, leading to alveolar collapse, and hypoxia, leading to increased pulmonary vascular resistance and decreased pulmonary blood flow, both impair gas exchange in the premature neonate. Part 5. What are the clinical signs and symptoms of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Now that we've thoroughly discussed the pathophysiology behind neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, let's move on to its classical clinical presentations. As one would anticipate based on its name, neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is characterized by signs of respiratory distress. These include tachypnea, subcostal and intercostal retractions, nasal flaring, and grunting in a preterm infant, generally within a few hours of birth. Grunting, in which the glottis closes in an attempt to increase functional residual capacity, is able to increase airway pressure, helping to recruit otherwise collapsed airways and alveoli. Grunting, though beneficial, is a serious sign of respiratory distress and should raise concern for impending respiratory failure. Neonates may also present with cyanosis related to their hypoxia. The diagnosis of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is confirmed on chest x-ray, which also helps to exclude alternative conditions. In neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, it will show a ground glass appearance of diffuse fine granular infiltrates due to collapse or atelectasis of the involved airways, as well as fluid retention. The lungs literally appear filled with a diffuse, hazy, ground glass type sediment. There may also be evidence of air bronchograms, which are air-filled bronchi surrounded by fluid-filled and collapsed alveoli. Part 6. How is neonatal respiratory distress syndrome treated? 
The treatment of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome includes five strategies. The first strategy is prevention, using antenatal steroid administration. If there is a concern for an impending premature delivery, pregnant women may be given dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid. Dexamethasone facilitates maturation of type 2 pneumocytes and production of surfactant in the lungs of the fetus before the baby is born. This reduces the risk and the severity of the neonatal respiratory distress syndrome if the baby were to be delivered prematurely. The next step in treatment is administration of exogenous surfactant. Once a premature neonate is born, introduction of exogenous surfactant into the newborn's lungs can help reduce the alveolar surface tension and improve the lungs compliance. Neonates are briefly intubated to administer surfactant into their lungs. A third treatment modality is continuous positive airway pressure. This can assist in keeping the smaller lung airways and alveoli open by delivering positive end expiratory pressure when alveoli would have otherwise collapsed. Using surfactant in conjunction with continuous positive airway pressure increases lung patency. Both of these therapies give the body some time, typically three to four days, to produce endogenous surfactant. Supplemental oxygen is a fourth treatment important for oxygenation of tissue and reducing pulmonary vascular resistance. When using oxygen, however, it is important to be mindful about the complications of excessive oxygenation, which can cause tissue injury from reactive oxygen species and the inhibition of normal vasculature growth. An example of this is a condition called retinopathy of prematurity, which is when the retinal vasculature grows abnormally. And the fifth treatment is inhaled nitric oxide. Inhaled nitric oxide is used in severe cases of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. It works to decrease the pulmonary vascular resistance of the blood vessels in the lung, assisting in pulmonary blood flow and gas exchange. Okay, let's review the above with a question. Can you list the five therapies for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Antenatal steroids, exogenous surfactant, continuous positive airway pressure, supplemental oxygen, and inhaled nitric oxide are five therapies for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. And that's all I have today for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. Let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. Can you define neonatal respiratory distress syndrome and list its risk factors? Neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is the result of incompletely developed lungs in preterm neonates born with surfactant deficiency. This prevents optimal gas exchange and leads to respiratory distress. Risk factors include prematurity, multiparous gestation, a mother with diabetes mellitus, and rare hereditary causes impacting the surfactant-producing genes. Can you apply Laplace law, lung compliance, pulmonary vascular resistance, and extrapulmonary shunts to the etiology of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Surfactant helps decrease alveolar surface tension, increase lung compliance, and maintain open alveoli, 
With surfactant deficiency, the resulting hypoxia increases pulmonary vascular resistance and impairs pulmonary blood flow, maintaining patency of some of the extra pulmonary shunts in the fetal circulation, such as the ductus arteriosus. Can you differentiate between type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes and their role in neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Type 2 pneumocytes are the surfactant-producing cells and are important to reduce surface tension in the airways, keeping the airways open and helping the structural cells of the alveoli, the type 1 pneumocytes, to facilitate gas exchange between the alveoli and the blood. In neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, the airways are underdeveloped and there is insufficient surfactant production from type 2 pneumocytes. Can you list the common clinical presentations of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Common clinical signs of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome include increased work of breathing, cyanosis, grunting, and nasal flaring, and other signs of respiratory distress within the first few hours of life. And lastly, can you explain how the application of positive end expiratory pressure and exogenous surfactant helps patients with neonatal respiratory distress syndrome? Treatment of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome may include positive airway pressure, which provides sufficient pressure to maintain patency of the airways, and exogenous surfactant, which helps to reduce surface tension, especially in smaller alveoli, to maintain patency and increase lung compliance. Armed with your newfound knowledge of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, let's revisit our patient's story from the beginning of this episode. If you recall, your patient Kaylee is a one-hour-old girl, born at 27 weeks gestation, presenting with worsening hypoxia and respiratory distress. As you consider her deterioration, you wonder, what are the possible causes for her respiratory distress? And what additional interventions could you consider to help her respiratory condition? We recognize that Kaylee has a concerning constellation of findings, and given her prematurity, you are concerned for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. You order a chest x-ray, which confirms your suspicion, demonstrating a ground glass appearance and signs of diffuse airway disease. Neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is a common condition of premature neonates and leads to a challenging clinical course. You hope your treatments centering on early administration of exogenous surfactant, continuous positive airway pressure, and carefully titrated supplemental oxygen will get Kaylee through this precarious period of postnatal development. And that's all I have for neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. Stay healthy out there.